Father, when we read something like Psalm 51, we realize how much sin there is to be repented of. And sometimes, God, when we are brought low by our sins, when we realize how great they are, how much they grieve your spirit, we feel like David. We wonder if you will take away our joy or take away the salvation that causes our joy or take away your spirit from us. God, in our heads we know that you won't, but in our hearts we feel that you should. And we need reminding that before your throne above, we have a great high priest who is always interceding for us, whose hands and feet have been pierced, who has been forsaken for us. Remind us of Him, that He Himself is the great unchangeable I Am. And if He doesn't change, then our status as children of God won't change. Now we pray, God, that as we think again about repentance, as we think about it more deeply and hopefully feel it more deeply, that in the back of our minds all the way through our time this morning, we would remember that we have a strong and a perfect plea in spite of our sins. We have a great high priest who intercedes for us. Drive us to Jesus today and help us see and love and trust him. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you'd like to turn to Luke 3, that's where we will be camping out this morning. Four Christmases ago, we began working our way through the Gospel of Luke together. Some of you were here at that time and you may remember that. Uh, you probably, even if you weren't here, remember that the first two chapters of this book deal with two births. First, the birth of John, who is the son of Zacharias and Elizabeth. And then, of course, Luke 1 and 2 tell us of the birth of Jesus, who is the son of God and John's younger cousin. Chapters 1 and 2 also record all the miraculous events surrounding those two births. And then chapter 2 ends with uh, the only story that we have of Jesus' later childhood, uh, a family mishap that occurred when he was 12 years old. So four years ago or three years ago, Christmas time seemed like a good occasion for us to begin working our way through Luke's gospel consecutively. And we did that in December of 2005. But having made it through those first two chapters, uh, my heart's attention and affection began to turn to the book of Genesis. And therefore, so did our Sunday morning sermons. And I trust that that was the Lord's doing. But ever since then, I've had it in my mind that we would eventually want to and need to return to Luke's gospel. And having spent much of this past year sort of assembling a skeleton of Christian doctrine in our Theology 101 series, it seemed to me that now would be a good time for us to go back and put flesh on those bones by turning our attention to this beautiful and riveting biography of our Savior, Jesus, God's own Son. So we're coming this morning to Luke chapter 3, 
consecutively, but with a little bit of a time gap on our hands. Three years since we last worshipped the Lord together in these pages. But perhaps that's appropriate, because when we come to Luke 3, we also discover that there is a time gap in the story itself. Somewhere between 15 and 20 years, in fact, have elapsed between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. If you look back into chapter 2, you'll see in verse 42 that this event where Jesus was away from his parents and astonishing the Jerusalem rabbis fellowship with his biblical wisdom, that event happened, verse 42, when he was 12 years old. But now as we cross the threshold into chapter 3, we find that both Jesus and his cousin John are grown men. In fact, over in verse 23 of chapter 23, we see that Jesus himself is now about 30 years old. So if we were watching these events unfold sort of in the form of a documentary, the subtitle at the bottom of the screen right now would be 18 years later. And 18 years later, as the camera refocuses in on the story, Nearly two decades on from the previous scene, we find that the lens is momentarily fixed not on Jesus, who's the main character of this biography, but back on his older cousin, John, sent by God to prepare the way for the Savior. We know him as John the Baptist. And as you read these first 14 verses of Luke chapter 3, you will discover why we call him that. Now, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough roads smooth and all flesh will see the salvation of God. So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. Now, we've already pointed out that John the Baptist was the son of Zacharias and Elizabeth. He was the older cousin of Jesus. 
Luke chapter 1 verse 36 informs us that Jesus' mother Mary and John's mother Elizabeth were relatives, perhaps cousins themselves. And so John and Jesus are cousins. And we have John's lineage, therefore, in his pedigree down pat. But as we observe the beginnings of his preaching ministry here in Luke 3, we begin to see John the Baptist's portrait in even bolder relief. I want you to think about this man with me as we sort of put together a thumbnail sketch of him. I want you to think first about John's times. John's times. You noticed, I'm sure, the extensive list of difficult to pronounce names that Luke gives us there in verses 1 and 2. Tiberius Caesar, the emperor, Pontius Pilate, the governor, Trachonitis and Lysanias, the tetrarchs, and so on. Luke gives us a roll call of the secular and the religious leaders of the day, all of whom or most of whom, anyway, are known in the pages of Scripture for their rank ungodliness. In fact, as you read the list, if you're familiar with the end of Luke's Gospel or the crucifixion story of Jesus, you will notice that some of the very names that appear here appear again at the end of the book in connection with the trumped-up trial and execution of Jesus. And if you read on in these men's histories, both biblical and Otherwise, you would also read of greed and dishonesty and bribery and adultery and incest and mass murder just from this brief list of names. So much so that the English preacher of the 1800s, J.C. Ryle, wrote of Luke 3, 1 and 2, there is hardly a name in it which is not infamous for wickedness. And usually wickedness in the leaders, debauchery and unfeeling hearts among the leaders leads to debauchery and unfeeling hearts among the common people. And these are the times into which John came preaching. And so it's no wonder that when we see John, very often the first word out of his mouth seems to have been repent. Repent. He was living in evil days. And he was, in many respects, until Jesus came on the scene, John was the lone voice for truth in the early years of his ministry. And before we go on to anything else, I just want to pause and say that John, therefore, is a great example for those of us who may feel as though we are the lone voice of truth in our workplace or in our family or in the classroom or increasingly in our nation, wherever it may be. John can encourage us not to give up, to keep proclaiming God, even though it seems that no one cares and no one is listening. Listen to J.C. Ryle again. Let us learn never to despair about the cause of God's truth, however black and unfavorable its prospects may appear. At the very time when things seem hopeless, God may be preparing a mighty deliverance. Let us beware of slacking our hands from any work of God because of the wickedness of the times. He that observeth the wind shall not sow, and he that regardeth the clouds shall not reap. Ecclesiastes 6.4 Let us work on and believe that help will come from heaven. And that's exactly what we find John doing. He is working on believing that help will come from heaven. And of course, we know help did come from heaven in the form of his cousin, Jesus, the Son of God. And also, just as an aside, let me make one other point about this list of names here. Do you notice how specific Luke is? 
as he sets us in the context and tells us about what time things are happening. Notice that he's very specific. He doesn't begin chapter 3 like so many storytellers of old began, once upon a time. No. John, or excuse me, Luke, pinpoints specific names and offices, secular and religious, and places. Why does he do that? It's almost as if he is begging the cynic to come behind him and scrutinize his research. To the ancient skeptic and to the modern biblical skeptic, Luke, with this list of names, is saying something like this. So you're a skeptic about the Bible. You're a skeptic about Jesus. You're not sure if this is all true. You're not sure if I was really there. You wonder if perhaps the following pages were written decades or even centuries after the fact by a deluded religious fanatic who loaded them down with fanciful and untrue tales. Was that your problem? Well, if so, Luke says, let me introduce you to some historical facts that you will be able to verify if you cross-reference them with secular historians and archaeologists. He says, All these things happened in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. And Luke is saying to the skeptic, Look up those names. Look up those places, look up those dates, and look up those offices, and you will see that I'm a real historian. You will see that I know that about which I speak. You will see that you can rely on my information. So just as an aside, if you perhaps or some of your friends are struggling with the historicity of the Bible, whether or not we can rely on these gospel accounts, take Luke's challenge. Do the research. Look up these names and these places and these offices. And Luke chapter 3 verses 1 and 2 alone just might convince you that Luke was a reliable, capable, first-rate historian. And that therefore his gospel, the record of the life and times of Jesus of Nazareth, is reliable and first-rate history. Now, we mustn't dwell on those two verses or on John's times. We need to hurry along, secondly, to John's calling John's calling, which we see in verses 2 through 6. John was a bit of an odd character. If you've read the other gospel accounts that speak of him, you know that's true. He lived out in the woods. He wore rough clothes. He ate whatever he could claw out of the tree bark with his own bare hands. Usually locusts and wild honey, we're told in Mark chapter 1. But John wasn't a madman. Strange as he was in many ways, John was on a mission from God. And sometimes when men are on a mission from God, they're not understood by the people around them. And that was true of John. John was on a mission from God. Verse 2, the word of God had come to him. And it compelled him to preach and live as he did. Specifically, God had called this eccentric character to be the fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5, which Luke quotes here in Luke 3, verses 4 through 6. In your versions, 4 through 6 may be in all caps. If so, that's to delineate that that is an Old Testament quotation. And it comes from Isaiah 40, 3, 4, and 5. And God had commissioned John, set aside John, ordained John to be this prophet. 
that Isaiah spoke of, who would come in the latter days and prepare the way for the coming of the Savior. By his preaching, John's task, we learn in verses 4 through 6, was, so to speak, to build a highway for Jesus. Now, this wasn't a literal thoroughfare out in the wilderness. John was in the wilderness, but he wasn't out there building roads. He was out in the wilderness preaching and building inroads for Jesus into people's hearts. His task, prophesied by Isaiah, was to prepare the people to recognize and receive the Savior. And how did he do that? We did it by preaching, obviously. We see that in verse 3, that he came preaching. But notice the metaphors in verse 5 that describe John's preaching, that describe John's message. Really, verses 4, 5, and 6 we could look at. John's overall goal was to build a level road for the Messiah, the Savior who was coming. And so, one of the things he was to do, if we look at the metaphors there in verse 5, was to use sharp words like repent in order to grade off the mountains of pride in the hearts of men. The mountains had to be made low so that there was a smooth path for the Savior. And so part of John's job was with words like repent to grade off the high places in men's heart. Part of his task was also to use tender words that would add God's fill dirt to the valleys of people's brokenness and encourage them that they could come to Christ. Part of his job was to use clear words so that he could make, verse 5, straight paths in the people's minds that the people would understand and recognize and be able to come directly to Jesus. And in all this, again, John's ultimate goal, the same goal of any gospel preacher, was to make a smooth, level track upon which Jesus might travel into the hearts of John's contemporaries. Now then, in view of John's calling and in view of the times in which he lived, thirdly, what was his message? What was his message? What was the primary topic of John's preaching? Well, there were several things that were spoken of there in those metaphors, but what was the main thing? Well, you can probably discern what the main thing might have been by reminding yourself that you don't usually use smooth instruments to make smooth roads. In other words, you don't use spoons to grade off mountains, right? Use heavy equipment, sharp blades. And you don't use smooth words to make smooth paths in people's hearts either. Therefore, when I say that every preacher's calling is to make a smooth pathway for Jesus to come into people's hearts, it would be a mistake for us to deduce that the preacher's job is to make the gospel a little less confrontational and a little less offensive and a little easier to swallow. That's not how we make mountains of pride smooth. The actual opposite is true. If you want to build a smooth level road, your most important piece of equipment is going to be a sharp blade of some sort that will grade off those high places, those prideful places in people's hearts. And so it would seem that that was John's largest task. His greatest task as a preacher was that of road grading because there were many mountains of pride and sin that had pushed their way to the surface in ancient Israel. There were particular religious sins that we see marked all over the Gospels as Jesus dealt with the Pharisees and their religious pride. There were sins that were specific to the Roman occupiers of Jerusalem. 
that had trickled down to the common folks as well. And then there were all the common everyday sins of the common people that are the same today. Lying and cheating and swearing and lusting and bickering and selfishness and so on. All these things that are part and parcel of our own world culture. They were rampant in John's day. And so though John must have also preached the tender portions of the scriptures and encouraged people with wooing words, his primary message was repent. His primary job was to grade off those sins, to urge people to grade off the sins in their hearts and make room for the Lord. And Luke tells us, in fact, in verse 3, doesn't he? Verse 3 is a summary statement, I think, of John's entire ministry. And Luke says this, about him. And he came into all the district around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's the summary statement. His main message was repentance. The main word that he spoke was repent. Now Luke says he preached a baptism of repentance and Baptism, as we will discover when we read the rest of the Bible, is simply the outward symbol of an inward reality in the heart. But repentance is the actual work of God in the heart. Once the heart is changed, once the heart is repented, then baptism becomes a very important symbol of that. But until it happens, until the person actually repents, then the water is just water and nothing else. So it wasn't mainly or at least initially baptism that John was concerned with in verse 3. He was interested in the repentance that it symbolized, in the change of heart that needed to happen in people's lives. John and God working through John wanted to see people's hearts broken over their sins. He wanted to see people turning from their sins. Because no one will ever turn to the Savior whose way he was making clear unless they first turn from their sins. So, John came preaching a baptism of repentance. And what we want to do is spend the rest of our time this morning examining his message. What was he saying? Why was he saying it? And so on. And this message of repentance needs examining, first of all, simply because it was the main point in John's ministry. And John's ministry is the main point in this passage. And this passage is the main point in this service. So we examine it for that reason, because it's here. But more so, it occurred to me this week, John's message of repentance needs close examining because it's a message that is often neglected in our day. It's a word, repent, that is very rarely heard in our day, even in religious circles. So many preachers today are trying, sometimes with good intentions, to prepare the way of Jesus by making the gospel less abrasive or more palatable or more marketable or more hip or whatever it may be. But they may as well try to grade off a road with a silver spoon. It doesn't work that way. And when we preach in order to try to make Jesus more appealing or the gospel more marketable or more palatable, then we're forgetting that there are mountains of sin in people's lives, in your life and in my life. And we are forgetting that mountains are not swept away easily. We need dynamite. And that's what John's preaching was. It was dynamite. Such dynamite that it eventually got him killed, beheaded for his preaching. But he preached it because it was for the people's good. 
And repentance, I want to remind you this morning, is for our good. After all, this is the same message that Jesus came preaching, isn't it? And if Jesus preached repentance, then repentance must be good for us. In fact, in the book of Mark, chapter 1, verse 14, we learn that repentance was the very first thing that Jesus preached. It's actually a part of the good news. It's actually a part of the gospel that Jesus proclaimed. Repentance is part of good news. Mark 1, 14 and 15, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel, the good news of God, and saying, repent, repent. So repentance is part of the good news that Jesus and John wanted to give the people. Repentance brings us to God. Repentance drives us to this Savior in whom we find help and hope. It's a good thing. In fact, when either Jesus or John preached the good news, very often the word repent was the very first word out of their mouths. And yet the word is so seldom heard in our day. And when it is heard, it's often drained of its meaning. Why is that? Well, because people don't like it. It gets people upset when you look them in the eye and say, you must repent. You must stop being like you're being. We'll come to this in a minute. It's not simply you must stop doing what you're doing. You must stop being what you're being. People don't like that. It makes them angry. I'll never forget in Mississippi the look on one of our church members' faces as we stood on her front porch and discussed her sin. And I looked at her and I said, you must repent. And she looked at me as though I had just put a gun in her back and told her to give me all her money. I mean, she looked just astonished. And I don't know if it was simply in the moment or if no one had ever looked her in the eye and said that to her. But she didn't like it. And I have to admit that after that encounter, I was a little bit afraid to talk about repentance because here was one of the main members of our tiny little church and it had been so offensive. But Jesus was not afraid to use this word and neither was John. First of all, because as we're going to see, repentance produces wonderful, joyful, happy results. But John wasn't afraid to preach repentance either because it wasn't his job to please the whims of men. It was his job to prepare the way of Christ. And as we're going to see, no one will ever come to Christ without repentance. No one will ever stay very long on the narrow road that leads to life, but that that road has been graded by the preaching of repentance. And unless you repent, Jesus says in Luke 13:3, you will all perish. So, from John's preaching here in Luke 3, we need to ask some questions about repentance. What, why, and who? Actually, what, who, and why in that order. What is repentance? Who must repent and why should we repent? So first then, what is repentance? What is it according to Luke 3? Well, John doesn't give us a definition of the word in his sermon here in this chapter. He, I think, assumes that his audience, most of them being Jewish folks who are familiar with religious language, he assumes that they will have a basic understanding of what this word means. That, that is, that repentance has to do, at its most basic level, with turning away from sin. So I would submit that to you as possibly the simplest definition we could give of repentance. It's turning away from sin. 
And John must have assumed that his audience understood at least that much. And so he doesn't give them the most basic definition of repentance here in Luke 3. He simply preaches it to them. You must repent. You must turn from your sins. You must stop rejecting God. You must stop running from Him. You must stop being what you're being and doing what you're doing. Run from your sins, he says, and run to the Redeemer. So John's main objective here is not defining repentance, but preaching repentance and urging it upon the people. But as we listen to him, though he doesn't define repentance in so many words, we discover that what he does in fact do is let us in on some nuances in the definition. Repentance at its most basic is turning away from sin. But what does that look like? How does that work? When we examine what John says to the crowds by the Jordan River, we gain some insight. We can say at least two things to sort of deepen our understanding of repentance. First, from John's preaching, we can say that repentance is a change of heart. And second, from John's preaching, we can say repentance is a change of heart that leads to a change of behavior. Leads to a change of behavior. Now we can notice right on the surface level of what John says that repentance has to do with a change of behavior. He says it several times in these verses, doesn't he? In verse 8, the people need to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Fruits is a metaphor for behavior. Their lives need to change in keeping with repentance. Verse 9, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So repentance is about fruit. It's about changed outward behavior. And then in verses 10 through 14, John goes on and makes specific application of that fact to various different people. Soldiers, tax collectors, the crowds in general, and so on. So repentance does result in good fruit. It does result in changed behavior, and we mustn't miss that. But I want you to see at its root level, repentance is something far deeper. Repentance at its root level is not simply a change of behavior. There's something far more profound happening underneath the surface when someone truly repents. Now notice that the fruit, the changed behavior, is not the first element in John's message, particularly in verse 8. In verse 8, he says, you must bear fruits, but listen to how he says it. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. The fruit was the outward sweet growth of some deeper root. The fruit wasn't repentance itself. The fruit was simply in keeping with repentance, an outgrowth of repentance. But repentance was something even deeper than outward behavior. What was it? Well, it was a changed heart. Repentance is a changed heart that leads to changed behavior. We see that in these final Verses where these various people are coming up and asking John what they should do. Verse 10, the crowds were questioning him, saying, then what shall we do? Do you see as they approach John that their hearts have changed? What has changed in them in verse 10? It's not their behavior. Their behavior hasn't changed yet. In fact, they're coming to John saying, how should our behavior change? So they're admitting our behavior hasn't changed. We need to know how our behavior should change. So it's not their behavior that's changed yet when they come to John. What's changed? Their hearts have changed. They're now motivated to ask. 
what they should do. They're now motivated to do what they ought. They're now motivated to stop doing what they were doing and start doing something different. These people now wanted to change. Their hearts were different. They wanted to live right. Why was that so? Because John had been busy grading the roads in their lives. John had been busy calling them, verse 7, a brood of vipers, snakes. John had been landing blow after blow on their haughty consciences. And by God's Spirit, these people had come to see that John was right. That their hearts were wicked. And that their lives were wicked. And their hearts were now broken. They were pierced to the heart and they knew something had to give. That's why they were asking John what they should do. Because they had been pierced to the heart by the preaching of repentance. They weren't quite sure what they should do yet. They weren't quite sure, as verse 10 indicates, exactly how they should change and how their outward behavior should be different. But they knew something had to change. So repentance, yes, results in changed actions. But before anyone's actions will ever change, they have to be pierced to the heart. Their heart has to change. Their heart has to say, I want to do different and I want to be different. A person must come by God's grace to a place where he hates his sin and where he's truly sorry for it and where he wants to stop doing it before his behavior will ever change. So that, a changed and broken heart, is the essence of repentance. Changed actions are simply the fruit that is in keeping with a changed heart. So then now let me ask you, have you truly sorrowed over your sins? Honestly, do you hate your sins? Really hate them? Now, I don't doubt that some of you have attempted to change your behavior. I don't doubt that many of you have attempted to quit various sins. You've resolved to do better. So have I. But some of you may have done that perhaps as a result of some religious pressure, desire to fit in, or because you feel like you have to quit doing something so that God won't be so mad at you, or because you ought to because there's pressure coming from the outside. But whether you succeeded in changing your behavior or whether you failed, if those are the reasons why you're trying to change simply because of some outward pressure upon you, then your heart hasn't changed, has it? You don't yet hate the activity. You've just come to realize that it's not very good for you, that it harms you in some way. So your motivation is partially, if not wholly, selfish. You want to stop that particular sin for your body's sake, or for your reputation's sake, or for your sanity's sake, or for your job's sake, or for the sake of your grades, maybe even for the sake of your own soul, figuring, well, I'd better quit this if I expect to go to heaven. But has it ever occurred to you that you ought to hate your sins for God's sake? That you ought to hate them simply because they've hurt him and offended him and sullied his reputation and crucified his son. That's what you and I have done, isn't it? By our sinning. We made it necessary so that God's very own son would have to go to a cruel, naked, humiliating, excruciating, undeserved death. Does that pain you? Does that shame you? Does that make you feel anything toward God's sorrow? 
hatred of your sin, desire to be different than you are for Jesus' sake? If not, then no matter how cleaned up you may have become outwardly, you've never repented. Your heart has never changed, and it needs to. Today might be the day for you. And let me ask you an even deeper question. Do you hate your very sin nature? Do you sorrow not just when you do something outwardly sinful, but do you sorrow of the fact that you actually are sinful? Do you realize that just beneath the surface of your life there's this nagging, kicking, screaming nature that enjoys sin? It's there, isn't it? There's a part of you that enjoys sin and there's a part of me that enjoys sin. Do you hate that? Not just when you actually slip up and do it, but do you hate the fact that you sin because your very nature loves the sin? That you're not by nature a good person, but as the Bible says, a crooked sinner bent in your very soul in all the wrong directions. Do you mourn over that? Sorrow over it? Hate it? The question then is not simply have you repented, past tense, but are you repentant? Present tense and ongoing. Are you sorrow every day for the blackness that's in your heart? That's true repentance. Now, it's not constant gloom, as we're going to see in a few moments, but it is a regular recognition of and sorrow over not only your individual outward sins, but also the very crookedness of what is inside your heart. And let me say this as well. Before we leave this point, remember there are fruits, as we highlighted a moment ago, that are in keeping with repentance. If you have truly sorrowed over your sin in your heart, something will have changed. It's not perfection. It's not complete victory over every sin habit, but it's progress. So we're not settling for emotion this morning. The goal this morning is not just to feel really bad and to think, well, there, I've done it. I've repented and that's the end of it. No, far too many people settle for emotion. They were sitting in the service one Sunday and the sermon made them feel really bad about the way they've been acting. And they felt bad and they were right to feel bad. Maybe they even wept. And they went out and they thought, thank you God for granting me repentance. And then nothing ever changed. See, that's a change of emotions, but not a change of heart. So we're not just after emotions this morning. We're after a real heart change. That will come with emotion, but that will lead and be proven by obvious change of behavior. So, are you, right where you sit this morning, genuinely repentant? I'm not asking if you believe the facts about Jesus. I'm not asking if you've ever felt convicted of your sins. I'm not asking if you've tried to reform. I'm certainly not asking if you're perfect. I'm simply asking, has God broken your heart? And changed the way you feel about your individual sins, even the small ones, and about your whole character as a sinner. For you, the change may have come or may still come with tears. It may not come with tears. It may simply be a deep burden burning in your heart. Those things aren't the important thing, but has God broken your heart? Has He changed your heart and given you a hatred and a sorrow? over both your individual sins and the corrupt nature that's always there below the surface, even when you're not outwardly doing wrong. 
and has that hatred of sorrow or hatred and sorrow toward your sin changed your life? If it hasn't, then as we're going to see in the final point this morning, you should wonder about the state of your soul. Repent and return to the Lord. Secondly, who must repent? Who must repent? We have quite a list in these verses, don't we? A list of specific people. Soldiers should repent, verse 14. And in them, we have a reminder that law-abiding, upstanding, normal Gentiles were in need of repentance. Morality and social standing didn't exempt these men from this command. For there are sins that are particular to society's law-abiding, socially acceptable, normal people, aren't there? There are particular sins that appeal to the average Joe in Cincinnati, middle class person. In this case, with these soldiers, it was greed and dishonesty. And they needed to repent. And some of us need to take that seriously in the weeks ahead as we have great opportunity for greed and dishonesty and filling out government paperwork. In verses 12 and 13, not only should the normal upstanding Gentiles repent, but also the Jewish tax collectors needed to repent. 12 and 13. This is a different set of people here. Now we have a set of people who are supposedly part of God's family. They're not just the average law-abiding citizen. These are the, the Jewish men who are supposed to be a part of God's family. They were the members of the church, if you will, to put it in modern context. But their lives, six days a week and perhaps seven days a week, would have given no indication that they were a part of the group. And there may be one or two of you here, maybe more of you here this morning, who are in exactly the same tax booth with these men. You're a part of the religious group, this one or another one, and yet six days out of the week, no one would know it. And your friends whisper behind their hands and you say, they say, oh, he's a, he's a Baptist. It must not be very difficult to be a member of one of those churches because he's just like us. And if that's you, whether you know that they're whispering that or whether you just think that they ought to be, if that is you, the problem is not that you're not a part of the religious community. That wasn't the problem for the tax collectors. They were a part of the religious community. They weren't totally irreligious Gentiles. And the problem is not even that you don't understand the facts about Jesus, probably. It's that your life is just the same as the people around you, maybe even worse than them. And that means that you've never had a changed heart. And that means that you've never repented. And without repentance, Jesus says, you will perish. Who should repent? Notice verses 10 and 11. John was preaching there simply to the crowds. Not just to Gentiles, not just to immoral Jews, but to all the people. Repentance is necessary for every creature. And the good news of repentance and the forgiveness that follows it is available to every creature who will truly turn from his sins. See, we could read this in one of two ways. Everybody has to repent. What a drab, terrible message. Everybody is a sinner. That's terrible. Or we could listen to it like this. Everybody has the opportunity to repent. Anyone who hears John's voice and will turn from their sins and turn to the Savior can be forgiven. This is wonderful. Repentance is available to you this morning. Whoever you are, if you would turn from your sins and turn to Christ, He would not cast you out. 
It's available for you who think you're too far gone in your sins to be able to turn around. It's available to you who think, I just can't do it. It's available to you who think to yourself, I could try, but what good would it do after all? It's available, this opportunity to repent and return. Paul said it this way in Acts 17.30 in the great city of Athens. God is now declaring that all men everywhere should repent. And let me say a particular word to those of us who are religious, which is most of us this morning. Verse 8. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones... God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Let me put that in modern 21st century Baptist context. Do not begin to say to yourself after this sermon, well, I'm here every Sunday. I help collect the offering. I sing on the worship team. I give my tithe. I teach a class. I'm one of the deacons. I'm one of the elders. I'm the pastor. I tell you, God can find people off the streets to do those things for Himself. Anyone who has a little bit of willpower can go through the outward motions that we are going through this morning. So outward behavior is not the root issue. The root issue, as David said in Psalm 51, is a broken and a contrite heart. The real question this morning is not, are you here? It's not, are you religious? It's not, do you know the right answers? It's, does your heart grieve over your sin? Have you come to hate it? Have you repented? And are you consistently repentant? I have to wrestle with this in my own heart. I had to wrestle with it as I prepared to preach this week, even this morning in prayer meeting. To stand up and preach repentant, repentance. I have to ask myself, am I really repentant? Or am I just religious? And you must wrestle with that question too. And I beg you, now in the words of Peter from Acts 3, to repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now hear that well. Hear that last part well. Repent and return in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Hear that. I don't want anyone to leave today feeling defeated or deflated or self-loathing or in a bad mood. Repentance is not about gloom and doom. Yes, there is sorrow that is needful, but repentance is sorrow that leads to rejoicing. It's sorrow that leads to refreshing and to cleansing and to a new start and to a clean slate. And there in Acts 3.19, we have the silver lining to this dark cloud of repentance. There in Acts 3.19, we have the honey in the deepest part of the comb. There is the good news that I've been so eager to get to this morning. It's not the main point, but I hope you remember it. I hope it warms your heart and helps you leave rejoicing that repentance leads to times of refreshing. And some of you need refreshing. And the answer this morning is not to go on another vacation. It's not that you have to go to the spa. It's not that you have to read the right book. The answer for some of you who need refreshing this morning is you need repentance. And repentance leads to times of refreshing. Those in this room who have truly repented of their sins and who live repentantly will tell you how clean they feel 
when once they have turned to the Lord and mourned for their sins and pled his forgiveness. It's like water washing over your soul. Really washing inside of you and cleaning you from the inside out. People who have really repented will tell you how new they felt and how fresh they felt and continue to feel as they continue to live repentantly before the Lord. Repentance leads to times of refreshing. So whoever you are, if you need refreshing this morning, repent and return so that times of refreshing may come. Now, I've already begun answering my final question, which is why must we repent? One reason is so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And there are some other answers that we might gather together from outside the context of Luke 3. Why should we repent? Foremost among the reasons we've already mentioned is because God deserves the glory that we've refused to give him. He deserves the glory that we have withheld by our sin, and we should repent for that reason. Apart from any benefit that comes to us, we should repent simply because God is worthy and because we hate that we've sullied His name and offended His glory and grieved His heart. But if that weren't enough, and if times of refreshing weren't enough, God gives us another motivation through the lips of John here in Luke 3. Why should we repent of our individual sins and of the sin nature that pervades our character? This is serious, so hear this well. Why should we repent? Because apart from repentance, there is no forgiveness of sins. Isn't that what John says? He was preaching, verse 3, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And he tells us in verse 7 that as we run from our sins in repentance, we will also at the same time flee the wrath to come. And then he tells us in verse 9 that every tree that does not bear the fruit of repentance is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's not hyperbole. That's not metaphor. That is reality. Repentance is necessary if you hope to have your sins forgiven, if you hope to avoid the lake of fire. That's why I've been speaking so seriously about it this morning. Not because I want to create a congregation full of sullen, morose people who hate themselves. That's not the goal. And I'm not preaching so seriously because I don't think anyone here is a real Christian. That's not true either. I'm preaching this so seriously because this particular grace of repentance is such that without it, you cannot go to heaven. Unless you repent, Jesus said again in Luke 13, 3, you will perish. And I don't want you to perish. I want you to be in heaven. I want you to be forgiven. I want you to be refreshed from the Lord. I want you to turn from your sins and to Jesus so that you will not perish. But without repentance, you will perish. Now, what does that mean? Without repentance, you'll perish. Does repentance somehow earn God's favor? If we sorrow enough or weep enough or hate our sin enough, will that eventually cancel out all the wickedness that we've done? No. The hymn writer says it really well, doesn't he? Horatius Bonar. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. The tears of repentance cannot wash away our sins. Only Christ's blood can do that. So repentance doesn't somehow merit God's forgiveness. Christ merits God's forgiveness. And yet, 
Without repentance, there is no forgiveness. So how does that work? If we're saved by Jesus alone, not by anything that we do, including repentance, how can it also be true that there's no salvation without repentance? Well, Luke gives us a hint in verses 4 through 6, doesn't he? He tells us that the reason John came preaching repentance was in order to make ready the way of the Lord. In other words, repentance doesn't save us. Jesus saves us. But what repentance does is somehow it prepares the way for Jesus to come into our lives and save us. Repentance is like the blade that grades over our hearts and makes a smooth pathway for Christ to come in. So if John could get the people by the power of the Holy Spirit to sorrow for their sins, to hate their sins, to genuinely repent, then the way would be clear in their hearts for Jesus to come in and save them. But then how does that work? How does repentance make the way clear for Jesus? Does repentance somehow make us more worthy of Jesus coming into our lives? Is it that once Jesus sees that we've repented, then he knows that we're really serious about religion and now he'll come in and save us? Is that how it works? Some people think that way about faith and repentance. Once Jesus sees we're serious, now he'll come and help us. But that's not true. There's nothing that we can do to make ourselves more worthy to Jesus or to make him more willing to save us. So repentance doesn't make us somehow more savable, and yet it does prepare the way for Jesus to come in and save us. How does that work? May I suggest to you that while repentance does nothing to change Christ's willingness to save us. It does nothing to change Christ's willingness to come to us. Repentance does everything to change our willingness to come to Him. Let me say that again. Repentance does nothing to change Christ's willingness to come to us. But it does everything to change our willingness to come to Him. Sorrow for sin, hatred of sin, a desire to quit sinning. These things don't change Jesus. They change us. And what they do to us is make us willing to come to him. They make us see our need of a savior. Repentance, sorrow over our sin, deep conviction and desire to be different makes us long that there is a savior there who can help us. Repentance makes us want to run to Jesus. And so at one and the same time as we are turning from our sins, we're also at the same time turning to the Savior. I need to insert this caveat in case anyone is confused. There is no time gap between repentance and faith. In other words, you shouldn't leave this morning thinking that you must sorrow over your sins for a sufficient amount of time. Maybe it's an afternoon, maybe it's a week, maybe it's a month, maybe it's a year. And then if you sorrow for long enough, you can come to Jesus. You shouldn't think that way. If you have seen the reality of your sin this morning, you come to Jesus right this very minute with no delay. There's no waiting time to come to Jesus. Because repentance that makes way for Jesus and faith that turns to Jesus actually happen at one and the same time. Logically, repentance prepares a way, but in actual real time, they happen right together. You repent, you turn from your sins, and you turn to Jesus in faith all at one and the same time. Sometimes your conscience 
makes one of them real in your mind before the other. Sometimes you're conscious of one before the other. In other words, sometimes you feel really bad about your sins for a while before it occurs to you that this Jesus to whom you've cried out has actually forgiven you. And sometimes the realization that Jesus has by his own blood forgiven you is what makes you feel really bad. So sometimes you feel repentant before you feel like you've trusted Jesus. And sometimes you feel like you've trusted Jesus before you really feel repentant. But the reality is that those two things, repentance and faith, happen together. You cannot truly turn from your sin without turning to Jesus. Where else would you turn? There's nowhere else to go with your sins but to Jesus. So if you're truly turning from your sins, you must be turning to Jesus. There is nowhere else to go. So there's no waiting period. There's no, I have to go home and mourn for a few days before I can actually bring myself to cry out to Jesus. No, repent of your sins and at the same time, this very morning, turn to Jesus who will forgive you of your sins. You will not truly turn from your sins until you turn to the Savior. But my main point this morning has been to say that the reverse is true as well. You will not, you cannot turn to the Savior unless you have also turned from your sins. If you believe yourself to have turned to Jesus but you've never sorrowed for your sins the way we've been speaking of this morning, then you've never really turned to Jesus. Because you cannot, as the song says, turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in His wonderful face without your joy being mingled with a deep sadness over the wounds that are on that face and over your part in causing those wounds. You cannot look to Jesus. You cannot turn to Jesus without... A heart that both joys and sorrows. You cannot turn to Jesus without repentance. But if we turn to Jesus, if you would turn to Jesus this morning and turn from your sins, laying aside your religious reputation, laying aside your baptism certificate, laying aside your church membership, laying aside faith in some supposed morality that you thought you had, laying aside whatever it is, if you would turn from your sins in your heart this morning and turn to Christ in repentance and faith, you would find that times of refreshing would come from the presence of the Lord.